Hello and welcome to Naturally Smart People. Nice to be back with you. Um, Let me read something. This comes from a book by Tim Ingold, which is called Ways of Walking, Ethnography and the Practice on Foot. It's a really great book. I recommend it. I'll put it on the the thing at the end of the podcast. Um, What he says in the introduction intrigues me a lot. Every moment of beginning is itself in the midst of things and must, for that reason, be almost a moment of ending in relation to whatever went before. Okay, let me start again. Every moment of beginning is itself in the midst of things and must, for that reason, be almost a moment of ending in relation to whatever went before. Into which I bring my nephew, Joe Downey. Joe works for Friends of the Earth and has previously worked for Water Aid and is very much in the midst of things because his job is to push messaging into the public sphere around the work that these organisations do. It's challenging, it's pushing frontiers, it's very much one of the scapes that we are exploring in this uh, series. I suppose in terms of in this case, um, a thoughtscape that becomes the ways in which our cultures evolve and develop and apply new thinking to everyday actions. Hope you enjoy the conversation. So here we are in the office with Joe Downing. Hello. Hi Joe. So tell us about yourself. Why are you in Todmorden? Uh, well, I'm in Todmorden, partly to see my old uncle and aunt, uh, who I haven't seen up here for at least a decade. Um, I used to come here when I was a student at Leeds, so I used to escape here for the weekends, but that was 20 years ago. And you're greyer now. And I'm greyer now, yeah, unbelievably. Hit 40, how did that happen? Anyway, <laughs> I'm here to uh, plant trees, so uh, I'm a member of a loosely knit uh, cycling group called Time to Cycle. Uh, we met originally um, when we went to Paris for COP21 and cycled uh, about 100 of us uh, to go and protest and make some noise and just generally be a nuisance in Paris when they were... Is that London-based? Uh, it's it around the country, the yeah, like the hardcore are basically uh, in Brighton, actually, um, where there's quite a big bike scene. Um, but yeah, people came from all over the country um, on that ride. Uh, and then since then, we've kind of had a bit of a think about what we want to do. And we have ridden to other COPs. I went to COP23 in um, Bonn mm-hmm. this year. Um, but there was also a train of thought that was like, actually, let's try and do something a bit more positive, a bit more, um, yeah, just you can't always protest, can you? Um, and there's other ways of protesting. And one idea was um, to plant trees um, because the idea of Time to Cycle is that it's about um, climate change activism. And we thought that planting trees was one positive thing you can do. Um, so yeah, so so, <clears throat> do you think there's a correlation between getting a bit older mm-hmm. and activism in the ways in which you practice activism? Um, yeah, probably. So I the, think it seems like you migrated from shouting, shouting, <laughs> and carrying banners to yeah. something doing else. something else. Yeah, I think that might be true. I mean, I think there's probably room for both. Um, yeah. But yeah, like perhaps when you're a student or something, it's all new to you. You're, yeah, you think that shouting loud is like the most flexible protest, but perhaps, yeah, when you get older, you perhaps open your eyes to other 
things that you can do. Um, as I was saying the other day, like I read a book recently um, about client Earth, who are a bunch of lawyers who basically represent the planet in the courtroom. And basically that guy was saying that that's the way to change the world or to save the planet is actually to do it through the courts. And that's interesting. So the, the, the legislative structures that sort of define our day-to-day -day doing of things could be the means for radical change. Yeah, completely. Yeah. Um, yeah, things like the Clean Air Directive, which is, um, I think that's a new directive, but basically Climate Earth have been taking the UK government to court because they're not, they haven't got a plan to uh -huh. sort out like, the atrocious quality of air in places like London and Leeds and Glasgow. So is that because, the, so the law at the moment is, is defined in a particular way to suit the circumstances of industry and what have you, but what's happening is activists are moving into that territory mm -hmm. and as a result it's reframing what the law could potentially do yeah I yeah, think yeah. fair to say i mean there's some good laws out there i think the problem is that they're not enforced yeah the law is only as good as like the enforcement so yeah there might be clean air directors but if no one's really kind of enforcing them then they're, they're pointless so that's the other side of the coin as well mm. Yeah. Mm. so we reach a point where the legislation fails people's ambition and people get aware of the fact that it's not been implemented in the ways that it was originally conceived yeah. for whatever reason the laziness of governments or the inability of councils to apply the thing if they've got enough staff or whatever it might be yeah. and then in steps a new generation of radical lawyers who reframe that with a different set of parameters, perhaps. So, so I'm thinking of things like in New Zealand recently, if I understand it correctly, there was laws passed on the sentience of a river, mm. which is really quite an interesting departure from previous legal statutes. Yeah. And it opens up an enormous amount of interesting new legal challenges around the ways in which humans then interact with another sentient entity other than themselves. Mm. I mean, if that's true, that's that's quite a departure, isn't it? To actually have sentience on a, on a thing or an ecosystem perhaps rather than just, you know, a lot of countries haven't even got their heads around the sentience of animals. Because of, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think it's one that is really <coughs> worth pursuing because I think the, the sentience of the trees is the thing I'm particularly interested in. And wanting to try and find a lawyer who will be willing to take forward an argument about how we could create a legal representation of a forest mm. as an entity in its own right and then pursue that to a point where the trees actually employ the people as part of their ongoing activity because they are actively involved in the management of ecosystems mm. as, a, as a sentient entity. But also the, the economic value. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Services. So you've got all those bioservices that mm. a forest provides, and there's different ways in which that, I think, different ways in which that could be framed. And that becomes quite fun because you could sort of, well, we, we've already tried to start doing that at the Chateau of Demilmont mm. Forest because what we're trying to work out is how do you, how do you take something like a massive tree that's 500 years old and get beyond the idea that it's only a 
got a, a monetary value in terms of wood. Mm. Um, and some of those early sort of forays of the last sort of 10 or 15 years into monetizing nature seem to be rather crass yeah. because that's, that is basically what they're looking at, just the economic value as it currently stands. But breaking that into something that's far more about time and space, so you've got a relationship going on between what the tree was 500 years ago, what it is now, what it could be in 500 years' time, because these trees will live a long time. And then the knock-on effect of that into the immediate thing about carbon sequestration mm. and all the other stuff that we could associate with trees doing. Mm. Those have all got values, monetary values and qualitative yeah. value. Do you think we could get to a point where you could put a value on something for its future? Yeah. I think that's where that law gets really interesting. Yeah. I think that law is that, you know, those lawyers that are doing that and they're pushing into mm -hmm. that are really starting to open up some really interesting new possibilities for how we understand our in engagement with the world around us. Um, yeah, it's a, a new frontier. <laughs> yeah, very much. And it, it, it breaks with the sort of traditional ways in which law has been almost designed to enable business to function yeah. and, and set the parameters for what is or isn't tolerable. Um, a business has functioned basically without paying any dues to nature. Yeah, stuff, you know, yeah. Pollute the air, they create yeah. the water um, and they have to clean up after themselves. I mean, that's uh, one area that I'm working on at the moment is plastics. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, I should say I recently started a job at Prince of the Earth, um, environmental organisation, grassroots organisation with like membership around the world, um, and we're just launching a plastics campaign. Um, and it's partly about sort of consumer what the consumer can do to give up plastic, but it's also about the manufacturers who manufacture plastic with impunity and don't. There's no pay to pay principle at the moment, mm. so mm. they can just produce you know the least expensive packaging, etc., etc. And it's councils that have to clean it up, and councils now that China have said no, we're not taking your, <laughs> your plastic waste. They're suddenly like, oh, we haven't actually got the facilities what to deal with this. Yeah, yeah, so it's a real live problem. Yeah. Uh, and on one side, there's consumer, there is a consumer pressure building. You know, supermarkets have plastic-free aisles, and to reduce the amount of you know wrapping and digital onions and plastic and things like that. Coconuts. That was yeah. all the other week, wasn't it? Yeah, it's just <laughs> bonkers. Um, but yeah. It, but it's based on that principle that they can just uh, do what they want without having to pay to principle. So the campaign then is what focused around reduction or change so, of behaviour? Uh, yeah, the, the one that we're working on that's going to launch on Friday the 16th of February, um, so very soon, is um, simply called Plastic Free Friday, which is uh, yeah encouraging consumers to take one step at a time to reduce their plastic usage. So it is a kind of consumer-focused thing. Yeah. It's a bit like Meat Free Monday, so if people want to just, you know, dip a toe into the world of going vegan or going veggie for a day, it's the same kind of thing. Let's just imagine you have to plan your day out so that you don't use any single-use plastic, so you don't mm. get disposable coffee, you don't buy a sandwich from, you know, the supermarket at lunchtime. You know, it's, it's just about preparing a little yeah. bit more. Um, yeah. It's interesting, isn't it, because it's almost ubiquitous. Oh, yeah, um, you know, and that's I was just thinking you could say, okay, well, how do you get from your house to the cafe? Yeah, you might jump on a bus, for example. As soon as you do that, you hit plastic yeah. in a huge way. Yeah, yeah. 
and it's everywhere embedded into everything yeah it's the same it's with the like same. fossil fuels are yeah. embedded into our life as well yeah. so like you get on that bus you know, so we probably powered by diesel or petrol or whatever mm -hmm. um, so this is sort of taking one step backwards from that and basically saying look let's just start with small steps yeah let's just look at it yeah and it's the most common argument we get because I work in social media and we get a lot of trolls on social media oh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, they would always say like if you're at a climate protest or something they'll be like well how did you get here like yeah. did you get on the train did you drive and it's like well yes mm. but that's because our society is structured so that it's pretty impossible to do anything other than that yeah <laughs> is that the dogs <laughs> that's all right um yeah so you can only do what you can do yeah. within the structures of your society, but there should be a, there's a bigger ongoing campaigns. You know, let's reimagine cities. You know, yeah. let's reimagine our food supply. I would have thought some quite interesting things that could be done collectively. For example, if you go to a supermarket and you buy your shopping at a supermarket, which lots of people do, mm -hmm. and before you leave the supermarket, you unwrap everything yeah. and leave it there. Yeah. That would piss them off pretty quickly yeah. first of all in the management of the store but on the other hand if it's done by everybody i think that store would think pretty fast about what it was doing mm -hmm. i don't think it was that difficult to engineer a change in this but certainly in terms of the most upfront levels of procurement and packaging uh, are you advocating a <laughs> mass civil disobedience well, yes. it wouldn't be a disobedience would it It'd just be a no and actually i have it's heard. actually mass service because what it's doing is it's it's, a, it's eliminating yeah. the need to have to then everybody then take all that packaging somewhere else it's yeah. dealt with on site i've seen i've seen one person on twitter or something suggesting what you do is uh yeah gather up all your excess packaging wrap it up into a ball and then sticker there's like a free post tesco address or something that you can send yeah. customer service send it, it back to send it back yeah, yeah. exactly because yeah. yeah. effectively people are paying for it both in terms of the cost of the packaging itself but also in terms of the waste that it creates and then the ongoing effect of it so in a sense as a consumer you could choose to consume it differently yeah. um, i don't think it would take long i think that that is one of the one of the examples that could be rapidly applied to yeah, to I every think, situation we encounter it. Yeah, yeah. I think they are responding, the supermarkets are, so like mm. Iceland has said they're going to yeah. wait out all their plastic within a couple of years, I think, but they just need to do it quicker. But the other thing is that you could say that this is all scratching the surface of like the real problems, like you know, reducing the amount of straws, yeah. great, but it's not going to save them, you know, it's not yeah. going to stop climate change or some of these bigger issues that we're dealing with, all the you know, species loss and so on. But it makes people feel good if they're doing something. Okay, so then <coughs> I, let's go back to activism a minute. Then you know, in terms of the motivation of, of, of agency, you know, what what there's a personal desire to engage in things like that to define oneself, and there's a collective effect, I suppose, that you feel energized by the activity of a group. Mm -hmm. um, in, uh, an, in an organisational context, because you've worked mm. a lot in in big organisations pushing for effectively change, social and ecological change, you know, for a long time. Are there any other driving motive, you know, mechanisms at play that that we're less aware of, that that but are actually quite powerful? Mm. 
I mean, yeah, at Wartrade, there was very little of the, um, you know, kind of vocal activism. We, we rarely did speak, uh, you know, marches or that kind of event. Just, just tell us what Water, water Aid is. Uh, so Wartrade is an NGO, non-governmental organisation, uh, working to, you know, see a world where everyone has access to clean water and toilets at the moment. More yeah. than two billion people don't have access to sanitation. I can't remember what the figure is for water, but it's, you know, approaching a billion. Um, but they want to do that through um, advocacy in terms of, you know, making governments deliver this to their people because <clears throat> it's basically human right that everyone should have clean water and access to toilets. But Wartrade would work through, you know, the more, I guess, like the more backroom routes of advocacy, which is, you know, meetings with ministers. Yeah. Um, but they did have a theory of change mm. under, underpinning all of that um, but yes in terms of like motivation um, I think you have a goal you have a big ambitious goal mm. and that's what you're you're going for it's always more ambitious than is perhaps achievable but I think you have to set the bar really quite high for something like universal water and yeah, you pitch it way beyond what you'd expect to be able to get yeah. I mean it's like I was reading about the global the millennium development goals and yeah, uh, what they've, they've been now replaced, but you know, the world was never going to achieve them. But imagine living in a world that didn't express those goals, that yeah. didn't express those desires. Like you express those desires because you hope things aren't going to get better. It's like a, it's almost like an innate human characteristic to yeah. to hope that things are going to get better. So, yeah. So so we're sort of in, it's sort of inbuilt into you know. DNA psyche, yeah. to be ambitious that things will improve, yeah. which is why we're Re regardless of the evidence yeah, around it. Which is why we're in a bit of a crisis. It's like, is it really going to? Um, yeah. yeah, when a lot of people are saying, I think I was reading uh, that there are a lot of experts who really have doubts about humanity. You know. Yeah, I mean, James Lovelock is pretty clear on it. Yeah. He's saying a billion by the end of the century will be left yeah you know, so, so his, his argument is it's civilization collapse yeah. and it's interesting this having this conversation in this particular week when elon musk has chucked a tesla into space and i i wrote a blog about it because i felt really quite conflicted about what the hell that's all about Part of me is like, good grief, that's extraordinary that people can come together and achieve something like that and also bring the rockets back. I think the bit about bringing the rockets back to Earth was more interesting. But then alongside it, you know, why the hell would you chuck a car into space, just put more junk out there and, it, it, you know, the whole idea of advertising in space, yeah. creating a consumerized huge version. marketing. Massive marketing. Okay. But, but at the same time, it sort of it feeds an aspiration that humans have of yeah, it's the Star Trek mentality, mm. I suppose, to get out there beyond where we've been before and do things. Mm. Sadly, you know, we've got just as many challenges on the doorstep mm. that aren't as... Uh, they don't capture the public imagination as much, I suppose, but they're just as important, you know, poverty or biodiversity die out, you know, or habitat. Uh, yeah, I mean... All of those things. It, I was yeah. I was just exasperated a few weeks ago that 
there was a crowdfunder to you know save this Iranian cheetah, I think it is. It's a you know it's on the brink of extinction, yeah. and their crowdfunder is you know struggling to raise twenty thousand pounds or something. Yet someone who captures the media's attention, you know, like the guy who got stuck in a window on a date and poo gate. And did you read about this? <laughs> just, it was completely ridiculous. No. <laughs> just googled poo gate. Oh, <laughs> thank you for uh, that. And uh, yeah, he, they raised tens of thousands of pounds in you know in a few hours because it just was a bit of a funny thing in the media but yeah we have this diversity biodiversity crisis and yet the world's attention is, mm. is elsewhere yeah i mean it sort of it reads like a sort of um the end the fall of the roman empire sometimes you know that we are parting our way into madness and extinction our own bounds. yeah yeah and it's slightly gloomy, I suppose, to think of it in those terms. But the evidence stacks up year on year that these are the sorts of direct consequences of this type of way of thinking. And I wonder, as a, a person sort of working directly in the interface between public opinion, media and an activist mm. organisation, Friends of the Earth has been around a long time, nudging and pushing and challenging the orthodoxy you know where 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 you feel with that at the moment you know where are the things that you could you feel you need to do to really cultivate the change big question i mean <coughs> i mean i'm relatively new to friends yeah so um you know i think there has been some big gains when you take a step back and think about how that certain areas of society have changed. Like we didn't have a climate change act. We didn't even, you know, we weren't aware of CO two and what we needed to do 20, 30 years ago. Or perhaps some people were. But, you know, it wasn't a mainstream yeah. concern. Um, you know, somebody with the ozone layer would identify the problem and theory we fixed it. Although recent scientific data suggests that's not. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there are reasons. To, you know, society does imperceptibly change, and then you look 20, 30 years later and you think the orthodoxy has changed. So I think it's you know trying to change the orthodoxy on things like single-use plastics or, mm. you know, how we get around. You know, it's like attitudes towards diesel. Sales of diesel plummeting at the moment and the electric car revolution is upon us, you know, like mm. faster than governments are legislating. Ready to deal with. Ready yeah. For, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so things are changing. I think we do have to stay optimistic that there is capacity for change in amongst the madness and I think you'll probably know more about this than me but like the messages that are coming out of China um, again in this uh, I Climate Earth book that's where he draws his inspiration from saying you know the idea of ecological civilization could just save the planet mm. if it's enacted mm. properly and, mm. you know. yeah the China's a very interesting case isn't it because in a sense it's it has the it's both the, the devil incarnate in terms of pollution in one sense, and it's also the major potential to solve it in yeah. the other, because the political situation there is such that a lot of the things that are the effectively impediments in the West are not there in China yeah. if they decide to move. Yeah, yeah, and and sadly, you know, democracy is not always the most sensible arbiter of development. Done, yeah. no. and, and and certainly the the guys we met earlier in the year. At the listening to the land event 
would be suggesting that you know, there are some really interesting, quite radical things going on in China at the moment with regards to cleaning soil and innovating around food production that are potentially yeah. quite replicable at scale very yeah. quickly. You know. um, and they're pragmatic, aren't they? they? Yeah. I mean, they're not doing it to save the planet. They're doing it to you know, ensure that they can keep on feeding their population. Yeah. I think, you see, I think that's an interesting point about, again, coming back to activism, you know, what motivates activists, and I, I'm not entirely sure it's always based around, um, what's the word, um, empathy or necessarily the, the most altruistic motivations, I think a lot of it is just pragmatic, you know, this is crazy, let's, let's do it better, yeah. and, and that actually... For many people, I think is a much easier thing to associate to than something that's a bit more esoteric and yeah. or, or conceptual. Yeah, just out of their normal daily routines, and that's that's where you know the stuff around plastics sort mm. of makes a lot of sense, mm. doesn't it? You know, it's a good starting point. Yeah, it's also one that you, you know you don't even have to, in a sense, you don't need to do anything with plastics other than become more aware that they're there at the, in the early stages of it, I yeah. suppose. Because I remember a few years ago, we did a school project um, in the Pop-Up Foundation. And we, we, we had some schools around Burnley, around that way, who all decided to do like plastic-free February. And, and um, they did little things like the kids came in and put their plastic drink bottles that were disposable in the hall day after day. By the time they'd finished in a month, there's this massive pile mm. of plastic bottles, along with all of the stuff that the that, like deliveries come, yeah, yeah, yeah. and they're wrapped in cling film. So all of that stuff was collected, and then the schools started to see that procurement arrangements could be changed if they turned away the lorries that were coming with loads of stuff wrapped in plastic. Mm. They sent them off again, and very quickly, I think it was the YPO, Yorkshire Purchasing Organisation, if I remember rightly, they changed the way they delivered stuff. They didn't wrap it up in plastic anymore. And it, it you know, that was a really quick turnaround yeah. because obviously they want to deliver the paper or whatever else they've yeah. got to bring into the school. Yeah, I think there's been a similar change in uh, as those, you know, the polystyrene things that yeah. used to come with, and I think now. Most companies have switched to a sort of biodegradable. It's a starchy based yeah, thing, exactly. isn't it? Yeah, you can eat it. It's really horrible. <laughs> don't don't, don't eat, eat it. I don't think I want to eat it. Yeah, but yeah, so there is normally an alternative out there, isn't there, that can be yeah. switched to. Um, and there's just, I don't know if it's just That's the leap of imagination, yeah. I think, yeah. to think, oh yeah, we could use popcorn yeah. instead of using <laughs> plastic yeah. to package something. You know, it's not that hard. Yeah. I mean, polystyrene has to be, you know, the devil's own work. Like, <laughs> I did a beach, uh, not a beach clean, like a, a Thames clean yeah. with a group called Thames 21 who organised sort of cleanups and just the amount of polystyrene that was between the rocks on, on the shoreline. Mm -hmm. you know, it breaks down, it breaks down, it breaks down. It's yeah. just, you know, a pile. But these plastic bottles stay, <laughs> stay with the plastic yeah. bottles. Even if they'll stay for a But then it's days. like those, in a sense, it's, yeah, I see what you mean. The sort of the scale of it is enormous because you, we have a physical scale we deal with, don't we? What we can see, we can sort of deal with mentally. Mm -hmm. But then there's 
little things like the plastics that are embedded in face creams yeah, yeah. that are yeah, microscopic cream, yeah. levels, yeah, yeah, that are just as you, just as present and just as dangerous, if not more so, in terms of the food chain. Yeah, yeah. I mean there was a there was a win in that some of these microbes got got banned recently. <coughs> it didn't cover everything, and yeah, like you say, it didn't cover things like the stuff that's in sun cream. And there's a new thing that's come to light now is like every time you put a washing blade on, all the microfibers, yeah, like from yeah. nylon and so on, you know, going to released into yeah. this. It's just insane, like all this stuff that we're doing. And actually, we should talk about when we talk about downsizing, we should talk about our film. <laughs> oh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. So, so Joe and I watched Downsizing on last night, and uh. Interesting environmental concept <laughs> behind it, which was the idea that smaller humans use less resources and could be a, you know, uh, could solve the population crisis and resource crisis. But then it went a bit. It sort of went off on a crazy direction. I just sort of got lost in the, in about a multi, about fifty different plot lines mm. that didn't quite make, make any sense. sense. Yeah. I mean, the, the 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 crazy side of it for me was that. Okay, you downsize as an individual human being, and then you still consume on the same level that you would have done previously. You're just smaller. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, wake up, America. You know, <laughs> it's not. It's just not necessarily the way forward. Yeah. It was not. I, I I I do think it had some interesting things in it, and it, you know, underlying a lot of what we're talking about, I suppose, is the the damage of of a form of consumerism. It's not that we don't consume, it's just a type of mm. consumerism that has become the norm. And it doesn't it doesn't it need to be, be like that. Yeah, exactly. Culturally, I think we have bought into it, but we could buy out of it. Because if you go to a supermarket, for example, in Germany, I'm not saying they all do this, but a lot of them don't wrap vegetables no. and fruits no, up. It's photos of yeah. Yeah, stuff it's yeah. And you've got paper bags or yeah. you bring your own bag to bring but, it but bigger than that I, I, I thought you were going to say then mm. just in terms of you know the fast consumerism i.e. like obsolescence of objects yeah and, you know the, yeah. the iPhone that goes out of date and um, yeah fast fashion products sure. yeah consumerism essentially uh, yeah. but yeah it's not the only way it's I mean it'd be interesting you know, to legislate against companies who do, do deliberately put in built-in obsolescence mm. as, a, as a punitive, to make it a punitive thing, mm. to actually p encourage people to build things that last a long time. Mm. And in so doing, I suppose, raise some questions about the need for the next new one. Yeah. Because if it functions perfectly well as it does at the moment, unless there are radical developments to that phone or that computer, does it really need to be... You know, do you, do you need a computer that's so quick that before you type the word, it's typed itself? Because I've 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 got this laptop, you know, it runs like a rocket. But actually, all I ever do on it is record sound, mm. record some music, but write some stuff, do some pictures. Yeah, but could have done that ten don't years they just ago. Tap into a human's innate you know desire for a like one-upmanship. I've got the latest gadget, mm. and B, they just feed that sense of faster, better, stronger. 
getting quicker, better, faster. Yeah. Um, I mean, again, I think it's something that we're kind of indoctrinated in. And you could very yeah. much in a, a slow life. The slow, what the slow yeah, food what is. do we educate yeah. people for? Yeah. Exactly. Um, yeah. But yeah, come from a site. So I'm not a master's at it, but could you ever see that you would take them into court in the same way they've taken companies to court over the use of like data and things? And or crazy <laughs> building offsets and stuff. I think that would be quite a hard, hard one to prove, perhaps. Although no, recently, no, no, I think no, that no. they say recently they they admitted slowing down devices. Well, there's certainly on the printers. I don't know which company it was. All all companies mm. have been mm. mentioned and talked about in this <laughs> yeah, podcast, yeah. but. But there was a chip, or some kind of bit of the thing that once you'd hit a certain number of prints, it conked out, and it was identified. And if you go on YouTube, you can find out how to take it off your printer, so that it doesn't then get chucked away because it don't work anymore. So these things are, you know, they're embedded into a lot of things around us. It seems to me like you know, as we move more towards open source and modularization and stuff like that. And, and also people starting to become much more conscious as consumers. It seems that that opens up some interesting possibilities for quite an alternative way of thinking about consumption and participatory consumption around solutions you need at the time, but they might not need it all the time. Mm. There's organisations in the UK, aren't there, that, that the, 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 um, oh, the Neaters organisation, the sharing organisation, I what, I'll find out what they call put on, put on the, pod, the information at the end. Um, but then, yeah, you just write that down. <laughs> um, there's, a, there's a lot of talk about the circular economy now, isn't yeah. there? Just, yeah. That is becoming more and more of a thing. I, I had a fair phone re- until recently, mm. and they were trying to do that with commercialisation yeah. of the phone. And I'm not sure how successful it's been. I mean, they, it, to go into that market is... Pretty, pretty, um, well, it's one it? of those things, isn't it? That if if Elon Musk had done it, mm. the chances are it would be global. Oh yeah, because he's got that power base of stuff behind him. But he's gone into cars. If right? you or I did it, yeah, yeah, yeah. you'd be like three people in a cab, basically. <laughs> um, but but it, it 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 seems to me that's where the organisations like the one you work with. Mm. Have an important place to to play out beyond what they perhaps have done before mm. in terms of advocacy of, of an alternative that is just as useful and practical but is different mm. to the Same. the existing stuff yeah, yeah. The, 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 the sort of orthodoxy yeah, yeah. Mm. So what are you doing next? What's the plan after you've planted the trees in the freezing cold? <laughs> um, yeah, we should say why we're doing it. So oh, yeah. it's part of what they call tree... Tree responsibility. Tree responsibility. It's been going for years. It's been going for years, yeah. apparently. It's really um, good. Yeah, so the woman who's organising this one on behalf of Time Cycle, um, I think, just knows somebody, like um, those guys, and planting them on Hepton's Jewel, I believe, is to help kind of flood prevention, this area is pretty prone, prone to flooding with the mm. steep valleys and fast mm. runoff and that kind of stuff, so mm. long term project to uh, try and help kind of stabilise the watershed I guess. 
Um, after that, we are thinking about uh, summer plans, so probably uh, get together in the summer for people um, who have been involved in time cycle or want to get involved, um, probably in June and probably back at the Heart of England Forest. Um, mm. So the Heart of England Forest, if you don't know, is um, in, it's about eight miles from Worcester, um, that kind of part of the world, and they're planting what I think will be the biggest native, new native woodland in the country with 15 million trees over 300 acres, I think it is. Fabulous. So it's quite a big undertaking. Yeah. So yeah. I was there a couple of weeks ago and uh, contributed my 100 trees to, <laughs> to the effort. Um, but yeah, it's been going for more than a decade already. Um, so it's quite a long-term thing. But I think we'll have to happen. come over to Normal. Yeah. Do it there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and then we're thinking about the autumn and the next COP, which is in Poland in December. But that's a long way to cycle in December <laughs> across Poland. Yeah, in the so ice and snow. I'm not yeah. sure about that one, but uh, yeah. we're thinking about it. Um, and work-wise, yeah, uh, we're, we're doing this plastics campaign and we're hoping to, to do something a bit more substantial on that in the summer. Mm. Um, perhaps looking at festivals um, for use of, sort of throwaway items at festivals because it's quite a big thing in the summer. Um, That's a seriously big thing. Yeah. I mean, you look at some of those events, the waste that kicks yeah. off the back of them. Is just and a lot of them are aware of it. So Glastonbury has been trying yeah. to move towards like um, not using plastic in its food, yeah. food uh, its industries. But uh, yeah, there's just so much waste generated. So mm. we're going to be looking at that. Um, and then there's a lot going on with fracking as well. So we haven't talked about that. But um, yeah. There's plans ahead afoot to frack in Sherwood Forest, and we're, we're going to be fighting those plans. Uh, and there's possible fracking quite close to here, I think, as well in Lancashire. So and, and North, York, North, Yorkshire, North Yorkshire as well. There's a pipeline being discussed at the moment that's going to cut across the North York Moors in order to move the yes. gas. Yeah. Mm. Well, yeah, I mean. It's an interesting one, isn't it? This idea of like energy security versus importing mm. gas from Uzbekistan and places like that for the, or you know, moving or, away from fossil fuels. Or moving to radical yeah. alternatives. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. yeah. Again, it's back into the human imagination, I think. Yeah. You know, it's what we're used to as yeah. opposed to what we could become used to. And, yeah. uh, and possibly the sort of whole re education process going on with it, you know? Yeah. Interesting Life times, John. It's, it's so. an interesting role you play. Well, in, in, you know, in a sense, forming those opinions with people through the media. Yeah, so yeah. I should have said that I work mainly in social media, so it's quite a, it's an interesting space to work in. There's, yeah. like I said, there's a lot of trolls, but there's also a, a lot of really <laughs> interesting stuff being shared. A lot of ideas um, out there. We get some really interesting suggestions from members of the public about. You know, the issues that we're working on so yeah. keep them coming folks <laughs> <laughs> so if we want to get in touch with you at friends of the earth what um, do we need to do you can well you can follow us on twitter where friends underscore earth and yeah drop me a direct message if you want yeah um, i won't give out my email because i'm no, trying no. to keep my email secret so that i don't go into <laughs> abuse, abuse and stuff. But, yeah. i'll put it on the on the information around the blog, yeah, uh, on the website. So yeah, and time to cycle is time to cycle on Facebook as well. Okay, time to cycle. Yeah, put those on as well. Um, because.
because yeah, we haven't enjoyed that yet. Cycling. Future episodes. Future episodes. Thanks, Joe. Wonderful. Cheers. Enjoy the day. Well, thanks to Joe for taking part in today's podcast and uh, spending time with me in the studio here in Todmorden. Thanks to you for listening and for your feedback and support over the last few months, which has always been extremely welcome. I've had emails from different parts of the world, and it's just a thrill to hear from different people that are just listening in for random reasons. Um, but always a thrill to hear from you and also for the suggestions for new people that I could be talking to. So those are definitely on the on the cards. Uh, Mark in Hong Kong. Yes, I know. And I will pursue that. Uh, Bill over in Australia. Thank you. And I'll definitely be talking to some folks that you've mentioned as well. OK, uh, if you want to support us further, we've just signed up with Patreon. Uh, Patreon is a facility that allows us to get micropayments to support the podcast. It's a whole new world for me, this, and I've never really come across this idea before, but it looked like fun. You can become a patron, basically, of the Naturally Smart People website and podcast activity. So go to patreon.com and forward slash Paul Clark, and you'll find us there. Thanks to Andrew for the music and the boats. Um, any of the links today from today's program will be on the School of Sustainability website, www.schoolofsustainability.com. Uh, I'm Paul Clark, and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. Bye.